following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And this morning, as we uh, come together, I want to spend uh, just a few minutes uh, praying. Um, praying for what would be, if it were in the liturgy, a pastoral prayer. Just for our congregation as we begin the new year. You know, even in the eight days of it starting, some of you are going, uh, some of you are already in some deep weeds that the Lord has brought uh, into your path some things that are challenging uh, to you, that the Lord, for some, uh, I know that there's, for the Jacksons, their nephew is in a terrible car accident and is fighting for his life. For others, there's a loss of a job. For others, there's cancer has been introduced into the family. For others, just transitions. We sang a song that spoke about we need a God who moves mountains. And we do need that. How many of you would say you're facing something? It may not be a mountain, but it's something in your life right now. All of us are at some level. It doesn't have to be cancer. It doesn't have to be tragic. It can be uh, a good transition uh, as well, that if we've got the slide for even uh, the Curtis family, as you know, Dylan and Karen, that they introduced uh, into the world. uh, Can you find them up there? Yeah, there's Haman. And uh, uh, so they've entered into our club of three-boy club. And uh, for so many of you, uh, that club of parenting that moves from man-to-man to zone defense Uh, there's just not enough laps uh, for someone to sit in. And so it's a good transition, but a transition. There's difficulties, I know, though, for some in your work, in your relationships. And I want us to go to the Lord believing uh, that God responds to our prayers. So often we live prayerless lives. We think about other people, we think about things, but to truly come and to say, God, I want to bring these needs in front of you. Uh, and trust that you can do them. Uh, let's go now and just praying for these various things. And obviously, uh, not all the details of everything is out there. But here's the beauty of our God. He knows. He knows. And he can even relate if you were to pray now. And your prayer was just a deep sigh. That all you could utter was just. <sighs> you realize God perfectly translates that. It says that your spirit testifies with your spirit with groanings too deep for words. And so let's go to the Lord now, even with groanings that are too deep for words. Father, we come and we acknowledge that we can't fix things on our own because they're too big. Even the simple things that we think we can handle on our own, so often we recognize that without your divine power and wisdom, that we mess them up. And so we pause now to come and, as your scripture encourages us, to cast our burdens upon you, to quit thinking that we need to bear them on our backs, that the breadth of our shoulders has to be expanded uh, to carry the full weight of our marriages, to carry the full weight of our families, to carry the weight of our health, of the health of others. That Father, we recognize that we need to come to the end of ourselves. And it's there 
that we find Christ who says that he bears our burdens perfectly and that we are yoked with him and that he moves and goes with us and that he walks along and he fills our life. And so I pray for those who, as they begin this new year, uh, they begin it with a wide-eyed wonderment of the excitement of what you have for them, the excitement of new life as with the Curtis family, the excitement of new transitions, of graduations, of jobs, uh, of times of change. And Father, we pray that there would be a deep and profound security within each of those and a peace that comes. For others who've experienced news that hasn't been as pleasant, that hasn't brought joy but has brought tears, I pray that you would be the strength in the midst of sickness, that you would be close to those who are lonely. God, for those who are saddened and depressed, that you would come and be their joy, that you would help them to see a light beyond and that they would know that you are caring for them. Father, for those who face uncertainty, I pray that you would remind them that you are their provider, that you are their hope, their strong tower. Father, for our church, as we look at this new year, as it unfurls itself before us, that we would see you, that we would prayerfully consider what you would have us to do, and then that we would move boldly and confidently but yet with great humility and sensitivity into whatever it is that you lead us into. Father, now as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us, that you would, you would show us the way. For it is your word, and without your illumination of it, they would simply be a story. But we want it to be life to us, bread. And so we come. And we ask you to bless it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to begin looking over the next several weeks of extending our reach. And that sounds like something that is all external, but we're going to begin today with, a, I guess, a presupposition that says this, there's no sense in or no ability to truly reach out effectively, uh, biblically speaking, into the world to extend our reach out. Uh, until God's reach has been extended deeper within us, that there's been a deeper, more profound uh, trans transformation and change, a deeper and more profound understanding of what it is that we believe that, that colors, that, that highlights and frames everything that we do. For you see, if we lose the essential message of the gospel, then if we move out into social justice, then it's only for social justice sake. It's not for Christ's sake. If we move into caring for the needs of other peoples without, uh, without the sense of the knowledge of the gospel, uh, of what God has done for us in Christ, uh, then it's an empty, it's actually using other people. We become humanist in the sense of saying we're going to care for humanity, but at the end of the day we're caring for humanity so that we can feel better about others, and in that sense we're using them to make ourselves feel better. That we, that we become good neighbors only to the end to share the gospel with them. But what happens when they don't receive the gospel message from you? 
Well, if it's not driven by a deep and profound understanding of the gospel, then you resent them and you move on and you truly haven't offered them a genuine friendship and love. You've used them for your own evangelistic ends. And so we want to move out. We want to extend our reach outward for sure. But we want to begin by allowing God to extend that reach more deeply into our lives. And what we're going to talk about today from Micah, an interesting place to start maybe, in Micah chapter 6, is really understanding what does it look like to be in a relationship with God, a true biblical gospel relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And once we understand that, and, and we begin to assimilate that as it, as it takes root and anchors uh, more and more into the very DNA of our souls, into that marrow uh, of our hearts, that then everything that comes out of it is driven by it, is informed by it, is influenced by it more naturally. And so the passage that we're going to start with, and we're going to jump to a couple of others, but at least the passage we're going to start with, comes from Micah uh, chapter 6. And it is going to help us to understand that in the coming weeks, in the next three weeks, as we talk about extending our reach out, of having a friend, Mike Coster, and his family coming in from Belize, who are reaching out to the people of Belize, to hear from some of our local work uh, as we've been ministering, and others who are ministering, extending the reach in the weeks to come, and then committing, uh, continued commit uh, to our work here. We want to begin here with the heart. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 6, looking at verses 6 through 8. This is the very word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Micah, who is like Jehovah? His parents were obviously pious individuals. They were churched, if you would. They had an understanding of who God was. They named their son, who was like Jehovah. Micah was a contemporary of Hosea the prophet and of Isaiah the prophet. He was ministering during a time when the northern kingdom of Judah was being overtaken by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Israel was going to be overtaken by Babylon and into captivity in a season leading up to what we studied in Daniel, of the people taken away uh, from Israel, from their homeland, dispersed uh, into all of Mesopotamia, all of the ancient Near East. It, It was a very difficult time for the people of Israel, for what they realized from these prophets was they had moved long and far away from a healthy relationship with God. They, they had taken their religion, and their religion had even become inter- either become internalized in that it had no external effect, or their religion had become so assimilated into the culture around them that it wasn't distinguishable at all from the world around them. 
that they had brought in idol worship, that they looked very much like the cultures around them, that for them their children were intermarrying with the pagan cultures around them, that the kings were doing horrible things, that the priests and leaders of the church were doing horrible things, uh, that the message of the gospel, the message of the atonement that comes in the, in the longing for Messiah was lost. And God, who is a just God, had had it. He was a loving father who was now coming to his children and saying, okay, enough's enough. Any of you parents ever been there with your child? Had that enough's enough moment? Enough's enough. Now comes the discipline. Now comes the loving correction of bad behavior. And by the way, young parents, loving correction of bad behavior is absolutely necessary. We live in a culture where so many kids are just told, it's okay. They're just being kids. No, it's not okay. We can talk about that later. Parenting class coming up in March, I think, uh, that Tim's going to be starting uh, with parents there, at least for teenage parents. And, and so God, as a loving parent, comes in and he says this, chapter 1, verse 1. This would be bad enough to hear from a dad or a mom, but to hear it from the voice of God. Hear, you peoples. Interesting. Not hear my children, not hear my beloved one. It's almost as if he's saying, all right, boy, as my dad would say when he was about tired of me, not Billy, not my son, but hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country and a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten into pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. All of her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall remain. And he continues to go on. Not a good beginning. But it is a father who's saying to his children, you've wandered away. You've taken this beautiful, glorious message of the gospel. You've taken this incredible relationship with me and you have tarnished it. You have set it aside. You have diminished it in such a way that it is almost indistinguishable within the world. And my name is becoming a sacrilege within the world. And I will not allow my name to have that happen. That's really what God's saying. He's saying, I care so much about my name that you bear. One of the Ten Commandments, you remember, is this. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And we say don't, that means don't cuss. Don't say Jesus Christ or GD or anything like that. But it really means this. Don't take his name lightly. Don't bear his name without the weightiness that it deserves. So if on Facebook it says follower of Jesus Christ in your more about you section, the rest of your Facebook should represent that. If your Twitter says that, if your Instagram says that, uh, if all of your Snapchats say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then the rest of it should follow in that. If it's got a little fish on your 
on your uh, business card, please make sure your business is ethical. Make sure that you're one who's known within the community to represent Christ. Well, don't take that lightly. If you stand in your schools, if you stand wherever you stand and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, God is saying, don't take that lightly. For I'm not going to allow my name to be taken lightly. Ah, that's the bad news. And good news, if you look at it from a different perspective. And so now we find ourselves in a very similar day, don't we? In a day that the church is so indistinguishable from culture that it's lost its voice almost altogether. That Christians have missed at some level uh, the true work of the gospel in their lives. And our lives, uh, we've become so given to grace that God is such a gracious God that it doesn't really matter how we live, that we can live however we want to live, but God's a gracious God and he's going to forgive us in the end. As some would say, sort of a greasy grace or a sloppy agape. And we just think, oh, this is fine. It doesn't matter how we live. And God's saying it does matter how you live. It matters what you believe. It matters whether this is the word of God or not. You know that, right? A lot of pulpits, it doesn't matter. If it's some of it's the word of God or all of it's the word of God, if it has any authority in our lives, if God is who he says that he is. You see, the reality of it all is this. We stand in somewhat of a similar situation that Micah and the people of the church then stood. We're not under God's direct. We're not being run out of our country. There's not a Syria and Babylon on the shores ready to run us out. But there is a season of time for the church to come alive and to recognize and to come back into a right relationship with the Father. And so we have to look then and say, what does that look like? What does a healthy, prospering relationship with God look like? What does he require of us in our relationship with him? So the first thing we're going to look at is what we think God requires, and then look at really what God actually requires. Here's what we think he requires, uh, and it comes there uh, in verse uh, 6. He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of oil, rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression of my body, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you see what's happening there? The, the recipient of the message of Micah and the, the knowledge that God is upset and that we are supposed to come back into a right relationship with God. And for some of you, uh, you're there. You're starting the year off in this way of saying, hey, my life's been a mess. I'm going to come back to church and I'm going to get right with God. 2017 is the right year with God. I'm going to get right with God. And that's what this person is saying. I'm going to get right with God. Maybe it's for the first time for you. And so I want to make sure that you're coming to him on the right terms. Maybe it's an annual pilgrimage for you. This time it's really going to take, and you add a couple of reallys onto that. It's really, really, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really, really sincere about it this time. And we don't come with calves or a thousand rams or rivers of oil or our firstborn. Do you see the progression in that? The person was saying, okay, God, I want to be right with you. I want to be in relationship with you. What does it require? What do I have to do? Okay, I'll give you a ram or I'll give you a calf. I'll give you a burnt offering. I'll do this. Oh, it demands more than that, I guess. So I'll give you a bunch of rams. I'll give you a thousand rams. Oh, you want more than rams? You want flowing rivers of oil? Okay, I'll give you flowing. Dang, God, what do you? Okay, fine. I'll give you my firstborn kid. 
What do I have to do to be right with you? What's your calf and your oil and your child? Maybe it's okay, God, I'm going to stop drinking this year. And I'm going to be right with you. I'm going to stop cussing this year. And then we're going to be right. I'm going to tithe this year. I'm going to get into a Bible study this year. Now, you see, all of these were good things except for human sacrifice there at the end. But it doesn't mean that he was actually going to sacrifice. And maybe it would be a dedication of the child. Of saying, I'm going to dedicate my child to you, Lord. And that child is going to be raised uh, for you. But what is it for you? What are you bartering with God with? God, I want to be made right with you. What do I have to do in order to get there? What are you going to require of me to get there? Okay, I'll be nicer. I'll be nicer to my wife. I'll be nicer to my husband. I'll be nicer to my parents. I'll clean my room. I'll do my chores. I'll work harder in school. I'll quit drinking. I'll quit doing drugs. I'll quit sleeping around. I'll quit doing this. I'll start doing this. You see, we think the gospel is a whole bunch of stops and starts. I'll stop bad behavior and I'll start good behavior. And then, God, if there is acceptable to you, then we'll be right. We'll be okay. You see, it misses it, doesn't it? And if you're in the middle of that sort of relationship with God, let me see if I can describe it a little bit for you. You're exhausted because you're trying so hard to please a God who can never seem to be pleased. That you keep trying and keep trying and he seems to demand more Maybe you just can't find any rest. That you're just on that gerbil wheel. That you're running and you're running and you're running and you're running and you're continually tired and exhausted with no rest on there. And at the end of the day, you have no assurance that if you were to die tonight, you'd be with Him forever. You have a hope. You have a strong wish. You have a good tendency and desire but a true assurance. And so if I came to you and I said, if you were to die tonight and you were to go and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Your response would probably be something like this. God, I've tried really hard to live a good Christian life. Some of you have said that. I've heard you. I've talked with you. You know what that exposes? It exposes the human heart, which goes back and reverts to a works righteousness, a self-work that says, I'm just going to try to live a good Christian life. And if I just live a good Christian life defined by whomever, then God, everything will be okay with you. But at the end of the day, you're exhausted, you're worn out. And if it goes on for too long, here's what happens. You just quit. Martin Luther said that he obeyed God constantly and hated him as a taskmaster. He was incredibly pious. He was incredibly uh, righteous in his actions. But he said God was a taskmaster, unrelenting, that nothing was ever enough. And it was at that breaking point that 500 years ago, Martin Luther came and discovered the beauty again of the gospel message of grace, of saying, you know, it was never about that. It was never about being made right with me through how much you do, how much you bring to the table, 
You see, the beauty of the gospel message is this. It's what he brings to the table. It's always been about what God brings to the table. He brings the perfections of Christ. He brings the perfections and the righteousness of Christ. And he says to you, quit ceasing and know, quit striving and know that I am God. Quit trying so hard to please me, to earn my favor. Recognize that by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, you have been saved, not by works, so that none could boast, but that you've received it fully in my Son. Now rest in Him. Receive Him in that. And then guess what happens? Your life transforms. And so it's as if the next part of this chapter, verse 8, is saying this, it is not based on requirements of the law, but it is based upon the one who completed on your behalf those requirements that you come and have a right relationship and be made right with God. And if that has transpired, then guess what your life begins to look like? You begin to love justice. You begin to reflect the just nature of God. You are one who's kind and merciful to other people. It exudes out of you. It comes out of you naturally. And you're one who has a deep and a profound humility. You see, this is what the Lord requires of you. That you love justice. That you walk, kind of, walk humbly with God. This is what he's told you, O oh man, and what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what the life of a believer looks like. This is what takes place within the heart of a believer. This is what God actually requires. And not a requirement as unto salvation, but basically a requirement that says this. If the gospel has taken root within your life, these are the natural attributes that come out within you. And so look at them and see if you have them. And if you don't have them, be concerned. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm giving you a litmus test. I'm giving you a picture to look at these things and to see if you have them. First, he says this, I want you to be a people, an individual who loves justice. That you love justice because you serve a just God. A God who says this, that I look on the widow and the orphan, on the marginalized. I look out and I'm one who says and I notice justice and I identify that within the communities around us, for you and for me as an individual, we as a church want to look around and be a church that's about justice. Not just for justice's sake, but because we've recognized that there is this incredible God who is just and we want to see his attributes, his personality, if you would, coming out from within us and through us, that we don't turn a blind eye to the needs of others. That we look around and that we're a voice for those who have no voice. That we're an advocate for what is right, for what is good, for what is humane. The church has moved over the course of the last century from a place of believing the gospel and of seeing most of the great things that have happened in the world have happened through an understanding of the gospel. Hospitals were born out of an understanding of the gospel that said we want to care for the physical needs of other people. And it was Christians who started hospitals around the world. And they began. Orphanages were started because of the sense in which there were orphans who needed care and they didn't need to be thrown out on the streets. 
Uh, I've told you before, Sunday school. You want to know how Sunday school started? It wasn't for churches, by the way. It was in England during the time of no child labor laws when the children uh, weren't be able to go to school, but they had to work. And the only time that they didn't work was on Sunday. And so churches began an education program to educate the children, not in biblical truth, but just in education. And now look at what's happened over the course of time. It's all about us. But you see, the church has been the place where justice has prevailed, where righteousness has gone out. And the church continues to be that and needs to be that within our world today. Because you see, it's your view of the gospel which informs your political positions. The gospel is apolitical, by the way. It's not Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian. It is apolitical and it informs your positions. So when you consider the fact that immigration laws need to be reformed in our country, here's what you say. I don't know exactly what needs to happen, but I know this. If there's a person from another country who's in my backyard and has a need, I'm going to care for them because they're human. And they're made within the image of my God. And I'm going to be a voice for them and care for them. And I'm going to stand for them in their human rights. And you're going to look around and you're going to say, I'm going to stand up for those who are caught in poverty. And does our welfare system need to be reformed? Of course it does. But what you say with that is this, I'm going to look at poverty and I'm not going to make a political statement about poverty. I'm going to see that there's children who can't eat. And so I'm going to go and we're going to care for the needs of those families. We're going to give financial counseling to the parents and the adults. We're going to engage. We're going to stand for justice. We're going to stand up for the one who has no voice. We're going to advocate for them, but we're going to do it as it's driven by an understanding of the gospel from within us, not to gain God's favor, but because we already have it in its fullness. And that we're going to be kind and merciful in the middle of it. You can be just and not kind, right? You can be just and not be merciful. God says, interesting thing, only in the gospel does justice and mercy come together beautifully in the same person. And that you extend mercy to other people who don't deserve it. Little side point there. Don't deserve it. My office is filled so often with people who say, I just can't forgive them. They've hurt me. They've wronged me. They're not seeking forgiveness for me. They're not seeking reconciliation with me. And my response, a little different than this, but at the heart of it is this, so what? They hurt you. They wronged you. Okay. Have you applied the gospel to this? Have you wronged God and hurt him? Were you seeking him when he wasn't, uh, when you, when he came and found you? No, it says none seek God. No, not one. Uh, We've done all of these things to God. And yet in the beauty of his gospel and the beauty of his message, he came and he reconciled himself to us when we didn't even want it. Don't you think maybe we can extend forgiveness to somebody else? That we can forgive and that we can love and extend mercy and grace. That we can somehow stay together as a church. And that you can stay and put roots here and work through stuff. One in six church people leave their church within the first five years or so and change churches or statistics. One in five or six. I was talking to somebody recently who is on church number four within six years but was offended when I said they may be a church hopper. (laughs) We've got to figure out a way to stay together. Here's what I know about me. If I haven't already, I will disappoint you. I will. I'll promise to call you. I'll promise to email you. I'll promise to do something for you, and I will forget. Or or I won't do it. And you'll get hurt. And for some of you, you'll walk away. 
because I can't be a part of a church like that that has a pastor who's that way, or someone just rude to me in the chairs, or someone was rude to me out front, or someone didn't say hello to me, or someone offended me, and we did this. But the gospel says this, we show mercy to one another. We love across those. We work through these things somehow to stay together. The world needs to see a church stay together. It needs to see us stand. It needs to see us, by the way, be more diverse. To represent the world better within the context of even worship. But if not this hour, then at least within the rest of our life. It's just and it's kind. It's merciful. If you were to ask the person sitting next to you, and they were willing to be honest, and they knew you well enough to answer the question, and you said, do you find me to be a kind person? Hmm. It's a dangerous question, isn't it? Because if you're not found to be a kind person, you should question what's happening in your heart. So the gospel transforms us. But they do. we do justice. We love mercy. And we walk humbly with our God. You see, humility is the cardinal virtue. We could have the other two. We could be nice. We could be kind. We could be just. But if we have not humility, it doesn't matter if we have the other two. The gospel is the most humbling thing. For in this humility with God, it is a constancy of walking with him in a humble state. Of recognizing that it was all based on him and not based on us. That it's a progression. That we're walking regularly with him and progressing with him in our lives. And it's an intimacy that we have with him Notice what it doesn't say. Walk humbly with God. It says walk humbly with your God. There's an intimacy and a knowledge of walking humbly with Him. Of recognizing that all that we have is from Him. Every good thing that we have is from Him. That if it's all by His good works and not my own, then I can receive anything that He gives me. It doesn't make it easy but I can receive anything that he gives me and I can know that it's from a good and benevolent God. You see, the gospel isn't about what we do. The gospel is about what God has done for us. And I can't think of a better way to hammer that home today as we come now to a table. And like I said before, it's not what you bring to the table. It's what he brings to the table. Because when you come around this table and you recognize this, that someone had to pay a price, that justice had to be exacted, this is the most just table in the world. Because it's God saying this, I can't just look over my justice, I have to extract it on someone. And Christ said, I'll stand in the place of all of those whom you give to me who have faith in me. I'll take your justice on their behalf and they will receive mercy and grace. Isn't that awesome news? Here's the worst thing that could happen to you. At the end of the day, and it could be today, by the way. Anybody sure they're going to make it home? Hopeful, but not sure. That you're going to stand before your God. And he's going to say, why? And you're going to say, because I gave you a bunch of cows and a bunch of oil and my life. And I dedicated this and I did all of this. And he said, it still doesn't measure up. 
when Christ is standing right there saying, if you would just accept me and allow me to be that for you, you would gain everything that you ever hoped or dreamed or desired. So folks, the gospel is about Christ in you, the hope of salvation. Let's pray and then come to the table together.